Good morning. Good morning to all of you who are here, and a special welcome to all of you who are joining us online as well. So we're in a series called Bless, and today we are purposely going to be misspelling the word bless. We're adding an extra S, and that S has everything to do with an incredible way of blessing our world, and not just blessing our world in an incalculable way, but also receiving blessing ourselves because it's tied directly to happiness. So what does that S stand for? We're going to see in just a few moments and uh, just give it a little bit of time. So we're going to start first uh, with prayer and then we'll jump into the sermon. So please join me in prayer. This is a prayer of illumination, asking the Holy Spirit to illumine his word. And it's based on 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that we can come to you just as we are. We know that we need you. Thank you that we can trust in your provision. By your Holy Spirit, give us wisdom as we look to your word. Reveal yourself. Lead us into a deeper understanding of what we have been freely given in you. Nurture and sustain us for your work as we share your blessings and the hope of the gospel with the world around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. So one of the things that we've been doing every week during this BLESS campaign and during this series has been to uh, talk a little bit about the BLESS campaign each week. We said we would do that, and this week I'm going to do it via video, so let's watch the video. The first thing I want to talk about uh, is what we want to do to the entry area to create a more welcoming and, envi and inviting environment. One of the things that we'll do is to take out the slippery floor and carpet that initial entry area. And that carpet will also mean recarpeting the space leading up to the worship center and all the way to the kids' wing, both which are in need of replacement because of stains and wear and tear. We'll also replace the current welcome center with one that's portable so that we can better position it for greeting new folks and so that it can be flexible for multiple uses. It can be used on Wednesdays for students, um, better than what we can do now. Uh, it can be used for all church events. We'll be taking out the column that's right over here where we now have the concierge station and it'll give a more open look. Now, the second thing I wanna say is for those of you who maybe have not been part of a church financial campaign before, everything you take part in at Five Oaks from the online services to the building, um, to the many ministries like small groups and kids and students, all of that is funded by our own church family, 100% of it. But it's not just for those who are here. It's also for those who will be here one day. Everything we do at Five Oaks has a missional component to it. So Five Oaks raises money in two primary ways. About 99% of our income comes from our general fund and from special campaigns like this one. It's been seven years since our last financial campaign. I was surprised. I looked it up. Seven years. Uh, so we use campaigns sparingly. But every few years, we need one because the focus of our general fund, the fund of our week-to-week -week giving, can't handle all of our needs. Now, the Bible even models this for us. In spite of all the tithes and offerings that regularly came into the ministry of Israel from the people of Israel, when it came time to build the first temple, King David led a special financial campaign. It was necessary. So that's how it works. We have two funds, our general fund and then the occasional special campaign fund. 
We're trying to raise $1.7 million for this campaign, about the same amount as what we raised seven years ago. It's essential that anything you give to this campaign be over and above what you would have given if there had not been a campaign, in other words, to the general fund. So please be praying about how you can participate. Next week, I'll share a little bit about why we're having a campaign now, even in the midst of COVID, and why a campaign, uh, why the kind of campaign that we're having that doesn't include land or new buildings. That may be different from some other campaigns that you've participated in before. Those are some of the questions, at least, that I'd have if I were in your shoes. And really, there are some really good answers for both those questions. All right. So this whole series, uh, Bless, it addresses a problem that we have. I think it's a problem that most of us feel rather acutely because we know that although the most important and most impactful way that we can bless someone else's life we know that that is by pointing them to the gospel, pointing them to the love and the grace that's found in Jesus Christ. And yet we have a whole host of reasons of why we don't, in many of our relationships, ever get around to it. And so in reality, what happens is that all kinds of, we know all kinds of people and we know them over a period of years. They come into our life and then years later they leave our lives. And when we look back, we recognize that we had opportunities to share the gospel, the love of God, His grace with them, and they were far from God. We could have helped them take some steps towards God, but we held back for one reason or another. So the whole series is focused on a answering a very crucial question. It's almost like one sermon with about seven different answers, seven different points, each week being one of those points. So the question that we've been asking is, can we learn how to share our faith in a way that's natural and relational and more effective so that we can help people who are far from God find their way back to God. Now, the answer to that question is, absolutely, we can learn to do that. And the key to sharing our faith in that kind of way, natural, relational, more effective, is found in the word bless. So we've been looking week by week at the word bless. Now, bless is a five-part missional strategy. And it's taken from the ministry of Jesus and really from the whole scripture, from beginning to end, starting especially way back uh, with Abraham. We looked at that in week one. Now, we looked at three missional practices so far, and we've got two more to look at over the next couple of weeks. But this is what it looks like. Each letter represents one of those missional practices. So begin with prayer, listen with care, and eat together. We looked at eat together last week, and we said, you know, this is, yeah, it's about eating. But it's not just about eating. It's about sharing your life with other people. And then next week we look at serve and love, and the week after that uh, we're going to spend a couple of weeks on share your story. And for those of you who've, you know, maybe thought about sharing your faith as sharing your story and you go, I don't have that great of a story, I've, I'm going to be sharing some things with you that I've never shared before, and I think it's really going to help you understand what it means to share your story, no matter what your story of coming to Christ is. All right, so we've added an extra S. We can call it the Bless series or something like that. But here's what it looks like. Today, we've inserted this extra S, and it's about stewarding your resources. Here's why this S is so important. Stewarding our resources is really one of the most impactful ways that we partner with God in blessing our world. In the biblical story, stewarding your resources 
stewarding our resources is about recognizing that everything belongs to God. Everything that we have ultimately belongs to God. Now, if you've been around here, you've at least a half dozen times heard me give the analogy of, you know, growing up and being told that your room is your room. Even if you shared it with somebody else, you know, your parents referred to it as your room. That's how stewardship is of our stuff. Because it doesn't matter how many times your parents said, that's your room, how many times you referred to it as your room, when you grow up and you leave, you don't take it with you. Nobody takes it with them. And when you come back, if your parents have gotten around to it, sometimes it takes a day for them to get around to it, it no longer looks like your room. And when you come back, you've like been gone a week, and they go, oh, you can use the guest room. <laughs> it's become the guest room. You lost it completely because it never was yours. It's the same way with everything that God gives us. You know, God refers to it as, as our stuff. Hey, here's your stuff. And, but ultimately... It's not our stuff. Ultimately, it belongs to the God who is the creator of everything. It belongs to him, and he, um, he is the sovereign. It belongs to him, and he puts it in our care. And that's why we call it stewarding. It's, stewarding is kind of an old-fashioned word, but it means managing something that doesn't belong to you. So um, today we're looking at the story of Ruth, and we're looking specifically at one particular person in the story of Ruth. And then not just one person, but one simple action that that person takes in the story of Ruth and how it has incalculable, I mean, you're going to see this, blessing to your life and to my life and to our world. And in order to do it, to kind of get the whole story all, in once, all at once, we're going to watch the Bible Project video that introduces the entire story. The Book of Ruth, it's a brilliant work of theological art, and it invites us to reflect on the question of how God is involved in the day-to-day -day joys and hardships of our lives. There are three main characters in the book, Naomi the widow, Ruth the Moabite, and Boaz the Israelite farmer. And their story is told in four chapters that are beautifully designed. Let's just dive in and see how this all unfolds. Chapter 1 opens with this line, in the days when the judges ruled. And it reminds us of the very dark and difficult days from the book of Judges. And here we meet an Israelite family in Bethlehem, struggling to survive through a famine. And so in search of food, they move on to the land of Moab, Israel's ancient enemy. And there the father of the family dies, and the sons marry two Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah. And then the sons, they die too. And so they leave only Naomi and these new daughters-in-law. And so Naomi, she has no reason to stay anymore. And so she tells her new daughters-in-law that she's moving back home. And Naomi, she knows that the life of an unmarried foreign widow in Israel is going to be very hard. And so she compels the women to stay behind. Orpah agrees. But Ruth does not. She shows remarkable loyalty to Naomi. And she says, wherever you go, I'm going to go. Your people will become my people and your God will become my God. And so the two of them return to Israel together. And the chapter concludes with Naomi changing her name to Mara, which means bitter in Hebrew. And she laments her tragic fate. 
Chapter two begins with Naomi and Ruth discussing where they're going to find food. And it just so happens to be the beginning of the barley harvest. And so Ruth goes out to look for food. And it just so happens that she ends up picking grain in the field of a man named Boaz, who just so happens to be Naomi's relative. We're told that Boaz is a man of noble character and he notices Ruth. And so after finding out more about her story, he shows remarkable generosity to her. He makes these special provisions so that the immigrant Ruth can gather grain in his field. And in doing so, Boaz is actually obeying an explicit command of the Torah to show generosity to the immigrant and the poor. Boaz is so impressed by Ruth's loyalty to Naomi, he prays for her that God will reward her for her boldness. So Ruth comes home that day, and Naomi finds out that she met Boaz, and she is thrilled. She says Boaz is their family redeemer. Now, This family redeemer thing, this was a cultural practice in Israel where if a man in the family died and he left behind a wife or children or land, it was the family redeemer's responsibility to marry that widow, to take up the land and protect that family. So Naomi, she begins to hope that perhaps there might still be a future for her family. Chapter 3 begins with Naomi and Ruth making a plan to get Boaz to notice their situation. So Ruth is going to stop wearing clothes of a grieving widow. And she's going to show signs that she's available to be married. And so Ruth goes to meet Boaz on the farm that night. And as she approaches, Boaz wakes up and he's totally startled. And Ruth makes her intentions very clear. She asks if Boaz will redeem Naomi's family and marry her. Boaz is once again amazed by Ruth's loyalty to Naomi and her family, and he calls Ruth a woman of noble character. It's the same term used to describe the woman of Proverbs 31. So Boaz tells Ruth to wait until the next day, and he will redeem both Ruth and Naomi legally before the town elders. And so the chapter ends with Ruth returning to Naomi, and they marvel together at all of these recent events. In chapter 4, it all comes together. It turns out, at the last minute, Boaz discovers there is a family member who's closer to Naomi than he is, and he's actually eligible before him to redeem the family. But at the last second, this family member finds out that he's going to have to marry Ruth, the Moabite, and so he declines. But Boaz, remember, he knows Ruth's true character, and so he acquires the family property of Naomi, and he marries Ruth. And so just at the beginning, how Ruth was loyal to Naomi's family, so now Boaz is loyal to Naomi's family as well. The story concludes with a reversal of all of the tragedies from chapter 1. So the death of the husband and the sons is reversed as Ruth is married again and gives birth to a new son, granting joy to Naomi. And this symmetry between the opening and the closing, it's even more remarkable. So remember, the opening tragedy was followed by a great act of loyalty on the part of Ruth. And that is now matched by Boaz's act of loyalty that leads to the family's final restoration. And this symmetry, it highlights the design of the internal chapters as well. So each of the chapters begins with Naomi and Ruth making a plan for their future. And that's followed by a providential meeting between Ruth and Boaz, and each chapter concludes with Naomi and Ruth rejoicing at what's taken place. This story is beautifully designed, and that design actually connects with a really interesting feature of the story, and that's how little God is mentioned. Right, The characters talk about God a few times, but the narrator actually never once mentions God doing anything directly in the story, and that's its brilliance. 
Because God's providence is at work behind every scene of this story, weaving together the circumstances and choices of all these characters. So Naomi, her tragedy leads her to think that God is punishing her. But actually, the whole story is about God's mission to restore her and her family. And he's doing so through Ruth, through her boldness and loyalty, which brings healing to Naomi's life, but not without Boaz, who's a no-nonsense farmer who's full of generosity and loyalty. And so God uses his integrity combined with Ruth's boldness to save Naomi and her family. And so this story brilliantly explores the interplay of God's purposes and will with human decision and will. God weaves together the faithful obedience of his people to bring about his redemptive purposes in the world. And that leads to the real end of the story. The book of Ruth concludes with a genealogy showing how Boaz and Ruth's son, Oved, was the grandfather of King David, from whom came the lineage of the Messiah. And so all of a sudden, these seemingly mundane, ordinary events in this story are woven into God's grand story of redemption for the whole world. And so the book of Ruth invites us to consider how God might be at work in the very ordinary, mundane details of our lives as well. And that's what the book of Ruth is all about. Great story. Just a fantastic story. And I, I, I don't know how many times I've seen that. Last service, I'm like getting all emotional. I'm all over again. <laughs> again, this service, I love, love, love the story of Ruth. It's a really easy story. Four chapters. Go home and read it. One person, one simple but profound action, incalculable blessing. So let's start with the person. The person that we're focusing on over the next few moments is Boaz, particularly Boaz. But one of the interesting features of the story of God, of the whole story of God, is that most of the heroes in the story of God are deeply flawed. And not only that, that the Bible majors in pointing out their flaws. It not only mentions their flaws, it features their flaws. There's no doubt that as you read the Bible, what God is communicating through his word is, look what I am doing in spite of these people. Look what I'm doing in spite of these people. That's, that's our story, right? Look what God is doing in spite of me. Boaz, however, in the story of God is one of the exceptions. One of the few people that, uh, for whom if a few verses are mentioned on a person, you get something, some kind of flawed behavior. He's one of the few exceptions. He's exemplary from the beginning of the story to the very end of the story. So that's the person. It's Boaz. The action that he does, the simple but profound action. What is most striking about Boaz is something that the text doesn't explicitly state but the video brings it out very quickly, and the informed reader knows what's going on. Ruth goes to Boaz's, Boaz's land, to, Boaz's land to, to glean from the harvest. Why would a Moabite woman with her mother-in-law who's Jewish, why would they say, well, how are we going to get some food? Go to somebody's land that you don't even know. They don't even know he's a kinsman. He doesn't, they don't even know that he's a relative. Just go to this land, find some land, and go over there and start harvesting. Why would they do that? Well, she was able to do that because there was a law in Israel that made provision for that. And so she was able to go to Boaz's land because, specifically, Boaz 
was explicitly keeping one of the commands in the Torah. So here is the command. You see it in Leviticus. It's in other places as well. But here it is. When you reap the harvest of your land, speaking to the farmers, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go and then, okay, so that's the people who are harvesting all kinds of crops. But then it talks to those who are harvesting grapes for wine. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. In a sense, the law of gleaning was part of what we would call the social welfare system of the people of Israel. And typical of laws like this one and other ones like it, it was neither a simple giveaway uh, nor was it a grab your own bootstraps and figure it out for yourself. It was generous, but it was also empowering, and it, it spoke into the dignity of the person who needed help. The law of gleaning, though, you might think it was just an expression of love and compassion from God, but it was more than that. It was more than just a statement of justice for the poor and for the foreigner living in the land. It was depicted in Scripture as the fruit of holiness. It's depicted as the fruit of holiness. Yes, this law was there because God is a compassionate God and a loving God, but it's also due to the holiness of God. And you say, why are you saying that, Henry? It's because you have to go to the beginning of the chapter. So the, Luke 19 begins with this verse. It says, the Lord said to Moses, so that God is giving the law to Moses at this point in this book, which is the third book of the Bible, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Jesus repeats this commandment in the Sermon on the Mount. All right, it's central to the people of Israel. But here's the thing. What comes after that, if you look at that chapter, it's a list of laws that reflect this value, be holy. One of those laws is the law of gleaning. Now, there's this, this one catch, and the catch is this. The law of gleaning required obedience on the part of, of the landowners. It required landowners to properly steward, manage their land belonging to God, a land over whom God is the ultimate owner and sovereign. Now, at the beginning of the video, it said where this story takes place. Do you remember what the context is? It is the time of Judges. Now, if you've read the book of Judges or if you're familiar with the book of Judges, it is a horrible, I mean, it's a, it's a terrible experience reading the book of Judges. It's it's a series of leaders, excuse me, <coughs> it's a series of leaders that God calls to lead the people of Israel out of bondage over and over and over again when their enemies take over them because God has lifted his protection because the people have gotten so bad. One of the features of the book of Judges is that all these judges are horrible people. Um, they start out okay. As the story goes on, each actual judge becomes worse and worse and worse. By the time you get to Samson, towards the end of the story, if you've ever read the story of Samson, he is a horrible person. <laughs> it's like God says, hey, follow the faith of these people, but do not live like they live. It's a mess. Their lives are a mess, and they create a mess everywhere they go. This is a time in Israel where the book of Judges summarizes several times, and actually the summary gets a little bit more intensified and more intensified. But you might remember that it says that this was a time in Israel 
where people, the people of Israel, did what was right in their own eyes. That's the summary of the people then. You can be absolutely certain with no doubt that not everyone at that time was doing what Boaz was doing, which was actually leaving money behind every single time he went into the harvest. It took a significant act of faith in God, in his provision, and it took an enormous act of obedience to leave so much of the crop behind. If you practice this law, you've got, you got to understand, most of us aren't farmers. Some of you came from farming families. You're leaving money behind every time you harvest. Enormous amounts of money behind every time you harvest. So think of a farmer like Boaz. Almost certainly he would look at farms, other farmers, and he would hear their stories, and he would see their fields. And what he would see is that they had farmed every single last bit of it. And then he would see the results of it because what they would have done with that extra money most likely, they, they didn't go out and buy iPhones and go on expensive vacations or buy more expensive houses and cars, okay? Um, what they did was they bought more land. Why would they buy more land? Because it was their legacy, it was what they left to their family, and that was everything to them. What can I leave for my family? So Boaz is watching the people around him prosper by not doing what God has told them explicitly to do. Think about that for a moment. And then I want to ask you a question. Which farmer would you be? Now, that is usually the kind of thing that you would say, well, that's a hypothetical question. Can't really answer a hypothetical question. Who knows what farmer I would be? Actually, it's not a hypothetical question. Because that money that they left, that, that, that food, that harvest that they left behind was their money. And all you have to do is look at how you handle your own money. And that is the actual answer to the question, which farmer would I be? All right. One man, Boaz. Um, one action, simple, profound, sacrificial, that... Uh, had all kinds of blessings. So now we look at the blessing. So what mitigates, why would a Boaz, why would you leave money that you could invest, that you could spend on all kinds of things that you could leave to your family? Why would you leave that behind? Well, you would do it because you understand the blessing. You understand the blessing and it matters to you. And you want to be that sort of person. You want to be a person who blesses others in that way. So Boaz is an exemplary good steward of his influence, obviously, but also his affluence. He's a good steward of his influence and his affluence. That's the kind of person that Boaz obviously wanted to be because he didn't have to be that way. You're the farmer who allows gleaning because you want to steward the influence that God has given you and the affluence that he has blessed you with. And you understand what that blessing is about. The law of gleaning was the way that God provided for the poor, the way that he blessed the poor. It allowed the poor person, the foreigner living in the land, also to the person who had had an unmitigated disaster in their life, it gave them an opportunity to work and to feed their family. Gleaning demonstrated the compassionate care 
of God for the less fortunate and the outsider so that it glorified the character of God to the watching world. There's a passage in question, I think it's question four, if not four, it's question five in your sermon application guide that takes you to where God is introducing his law and he specifically, explicitly says, if you keep this law, it blesses not just you, it blesses the entire world. Um, To the world that sees Israel living this way, to the world that sees Christians living in this kind of way, it says, this God is for you. That's why he's asked us to live this way. This God is for you. He is compassionate. He's caring. Come to him. You can actually know this God. There's a story that illustrates uh, this from a book that I read a few years ago, and um, I'll tell it via video, so let's watch the video. There's a scene that I love in the book Jaber Crow by Wendell Berry. I've shared this before, and you might remember it. I'm not sure why I love this scene so much or how I even noticed it, why it popped out at me, but I'll never forget it. Jaber Crow is a small-town barber. He's an orphan. And when his grandparents die earlier in the book, he goes to live in an orphanage, and eventually he works his way back home as a young man. On his way home, a successful businessman, a hog farmer from his, from his hometown, gives him a ride to Lexington, Kentucky, part of the way home. And before leaving him, he gives him some advice, and then he secretly slips $5 into Jaber's sack, a big sum of money back then, and especially for an orphan who has run out of money. The problem is Jaber has lied to this man about his name. He's not sure why, but he doesn't want this man to know who he is. And he doesn't notice the $5 until much later, and he can't believe it. That $5 goes a long way, and it helps him get back to his hometown where he becomes, uh, pretty soon after arriving, the town barber. But he knows that someday this man is going to come into his barbershop, or he's going to run into him at the street, on the street, or someplace else, and he's going to have to confess his lie. As soon as he can save the $5, he stashes it away to repay the man when he sees him the next time. And now the man has come into his barbershop. And Jaber is trying to figure out how to confess his lie. So he hands the man the $5 and says to him, I'm sure you remember the favor you did for me a couple of years ago. The man says, I'm sure I don't. So he reminds him of the incident, and he says his money and his advice really helped him. And when he's about to confess his lie, the man says, you've got the wrong guy. He, this man goes on to lie profusely to Jaber, denying any chance that they ran into each other. He says, I didn't even go to Lexington at that time that you're talking about. He then lays the $5 down on the, corner, uh, on the counter. And as he leaves, he says, I've already got $5. There's so much going on here. It's masterful storytelling. This guy, his name is Mr. Hanks, would rather lie than lose the blessing of giving generously by getting repaid. And that's what's going on. By lying, he takes away Jaber's obligation to repay him and his obligation to receive the money back. But he also, in an ingenious way, keeps his given, giving hidden from view of the other people who have overheard the conversation. He would rather lie than get noticed. I'm not saying that's a good thing, but that's what he does. Knowing a bit about the author, Wendell Berry, you can be sure he's got Matthew 6 in mind 
where Jesus says not to give in order to get the applause of people, or your reward will be their applause, will be their praise. But if God sees and the giving is done for God, God will reward the giver. But that line, I already got $5, it it hit me like this. God calls us to be stewards of his stuff, and it's all his stuff. Sometimes we forget that, and we hold tightly onto his stuff. And sometimes we focus on using his stuff only for ourselves, rather than being generous and faithful stewards. And there's that line, I already got $5. The reason for the failure of many of us, to f- many of us who follow Jesus, to be generous and faithful stewards of our stuff is a failure to know what is enough and that our enough is a gift of God. We can't give saying, uh, I've already got $5 because we don't think what we have is enough. When I fail to give faithfully and generously, it's because I don't feel I have enough. The $5 I've already got are not enough in my mind. So Boaz sees what he has, what is in his care, his fields, his plantings, what he's going to harvest. He sees it as belonging to God and as from God, a blessing from God. What Boaz is able to harvest is enough. What he leaves behind doesn't take away from his enough. If he takes from what God says to leave behind, what he's actually doing, he's declaring that what he has been given by God is not enough. What he's declaring is ingratitude. Jesus tied ingratitude, this is where it gets really personal, because Jesus tied ingratitude in the same chapter, Matthew chapter 6, to anxiety. Tied it directly to anxiety and to worries that weigh us down in life. Social scientists, study after study after study, agree with each other that gratitude is the, if not the number one, it's certainly in the top three, ways that we experience happiness. It's when we are grateful that we are happy. And when we're in, uh, not grateful, we're filled with unhappiness, anxiety, and, um, and worry. So because he is faithful, because he is a good steward, Boaz meets Ruth. He meets Ruth. And he becomes a, the great, great granddad of King David. So when the story of God is being told, and, it, and, and this major part of the story, way back in Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham and he says, I'm going to bless you and your descendants, and you're going to bless the world. That's why I'm calling you to follow me. Go and I'm going to bless you. The name Boaz is mentioned in the line of Jesus, tracing its way all the way back to Abraham. And then when you get to Jesus' genealogy, you see that line going all the way to Jesus. A simple act of stewardship, recognizing that God owns it all, is a way of partnering, partnering with God in his mission to bless the world, just like Boaz. As believers, we partner with God in his mission, in part, through our generosity as well. Part of that is through giving to 
whatever your local church, you're watching online, maybe this isn't your church. It's giving to your local church's general fund and giving on a regular basis. Part of that is also by giving to special campaigns like this one for your home church where your church family is. Every campaign I've ever, we've ever done as a church, and I've been, I think, part of, I've been here 20, going on 24 years, pretty soon, 23 and a half years. I think we've had five campaigns. And in all of those, every single one of them has been a blessed campaign. It's just this is the first one we called the blessed campaign. We're blessed by the, by, by the results of whatever the campaign produces. And then our world is blessed by our mission. People who are not here now are blessed because we're on mission. So many of us have been blessed. So many of us. We've been blessed by this, the ministry of this church. We've been blessed. Our children have been blessed. Lois and I came here. Our family came here. Uh, our kids were in third and fourth grade at the time. And so half their elementary school years were spent here. Uh, their middle school years, their high school years, their coming home from college years. And, and they, were, they were blessed in huge ways. Now they have kids. And my grandkids are being blessed as, as well. And I'm not alone. Many of you have experienced the same sort of thing. By praying how you can help us um, and listening to God, to whatever it is that he leads you to do, if you will pray about your role in the campaign, Leave it to God and follow his lead. Well, we always, as part of our service, we always begin our response to God's word here. It's a third movement of our worship service. So I want to uh, encourage you to take out your communion if you're at home. Hopefully you've got uh, a cup ready and you've got the bread ready. Uh, here we have, and I, boy, they put it aside for me and I, Forgot it again. By the speaker? Oh, there it is. Thank you. Uh, I want to encourage you to take the bread. And it is because of the incredible generosity of God. We speak of it as his grace, but it's, it's grace, it's generosity, it's love, it's compassion. Because of his generosity... Uh, he came to this earth and his body was broken for us. So let's eat remembering his body broken for us. And not only his body, but his blood was shed for us for the remission of sins. Let's drink together. Father, we are so thankful for your remarkable generosity towards us. When we are generous, it's only out of an overflow of what we've experienced from you. Father, I pray that we would walk in your ways. We thank you. We thank you for your love and your grace and your compassion. Help us to be signposts pointing to you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.